exercise the function of the head of government of the Republic of Uganda. So help me God. The excitement about the coup that brought Idi Amin to power as the third president of the Republic of Uganda was not only celebrated among Ugandans. The British, the Americans and the Arab world celebrated the coup. But that sense of celebration lasted less than a year. I have been honored by the highest order of the conqueror of the British imperialism in Uganda. After his downfall in 1979, many films and documentaries continue to reincarnate Amin through changing stories and times. Forty years on, Aminism won't go away. My name is Eric Mwenemugaj. In the last episode, I looked on how stories of Idi Amin were narrated to children alongside a fictional and legendary character, Isheka Tavaz. This is part two of the four-part podcast series. How did schools and films we watch teach us about this controversial figure in the 1990s, a decade after his downfall? Growing up in the late 1990s, it became apparent to me that no any other African leader has generated as much intrigue as that of Idi Amin Dada, the self-styled conqueror of the British Empire and the Ugandan dictator. Amin was cruel and unusual, so how did he earn a unique infamous status in a horrible dictator's hall of fame as well as a comical character for children and a controversial symbol for resistance? There are at least four films based on his life. Those include Mississippi Masala, The Raid on Entebbe, the Hollywood blockbuster The Last King of Scotland, and the latest Seven Days in Entebbe, almost of which all portray Idi Amin as a crazy man. He continues to be talked about in news and popular culture well beyond his native Uganda 40 years after his downfall. But how did teachers teach us about this controversial figure? We were taught in schools that Idi Amin ruined the economy of Uganda, expelling Asians. But our teachers also seized on films that were showing at the time. For instance, we were taught that he challenged his critic, former president of Tanzania Nyerere, to a boxing match. It's unpresidential, but kind of funny, really. In class, we learned how he crushed the economy by chasing away Ugandan Indians. The rise in Magendo, that is black market, people smuggling goods in on bicycles between Uganda and Kenya. Amin's legacy gave birth to the popular mode of transport in Uganda, the border border. Those were some of the experiences from Tracy in London and Derek in Kampala. At the age of 15 and starting to explore and do some independent learning, the image of Idi Amin started changing. When I entered secondary school, I grew to understand Idi Amin as a dictator possessing no fear or hesitation in killing those who went against his wishes. This is now a new Idi Amin, the one I meet in secondary school civic education and history classes, but also there were some lessons learned outside classes. 
as a teenager i admit some naughtiness i did sometimes skip classes and went to vivanda makeshift halls to watch films alongside the john rambo by sylvester stallone the rise and the fall of idi amin was also a sellout Almost all those films had no parental guidance or certification, so adults and children watched together. Scenes of extreme violence and summary executions by Idi Amin were shown in those films. In those films, I was to find out that Amin did not only fist on snakes but also on human flesh. Just as he was a comical character for children, many films portrayed Idi Amin as unpresidential. I remember in one film, the actor says as upon his well-documented love for sports, acting as Amin competing in motor racing rally. In one scene, Amin spots a beautiful young lady in watching crowd. He invites the lady to accompany him on the race. The rest of the scene then switches from racing cars to Amin having sex in some kind of bouncing car, while other racing drivers waited afraid of overtaking the president. How those fictions captured reality remains a heated debate today. It just did not help in balancing out what was reality and fiction. Teaching about dictatorship, for example, went along with Amin's outrageous statements, such as that of challenging another president to a boxing match, to that of calling Ugandans to fundraise and help Britain, which was apparently going through a recession. Was there a quiet admiration of his nationalistic approach such as his ambition to Africanize the economy? I think there was. We learned, for example, that after independence, when many Ugandans thought they would be enjoying the assumed outcomes of independence, for example, decent jobs and economic empowerment, we were taught of how most black Ugandans in urban centers switched from working as domestic servants for European colonial masters to taking on the same roles for post-independent economic elites who were mostly Indian Ugandans. So, claims such as Amin wanting to see the whole of Kampala streets owned by Ugandans elicited some quiet admirations from some of us, despite the fact that there was enough knowledge of his uncompromising approach and violence against those perceived to be dissidents. At the same time in the 1990s, Uganda had gone through a conflict commonly known as the Bush War, and a new revolutionary leader had emerged. Education was to be revolutionary too. Whether Amin was a cannibal in cinema fictions, it was better for the new leadership to encourage silence on reality. So, the education system stayed silent especially on Idi Amin's alleged cannibalism. He was a bad guy from the north, so he may as well have been a cannibal. This narrative probably suited the new ruling elites from the south, who had taken a view that northern Ugandans had dominated post-independent politics for a long time. At home, stories of cannibalism never came up in any discussions with my parents or older siblings, but Amin's uncompromising approach was generally agreed. For example, the 90 days he gave to Ugandan Asians to leave the country, an act he claimed was revealed in a dream. This just added confusion to me of whether Idi Amin was a Pan-Africanist 
oh unpredictable dictator who also claimed to have dreamt that he would one day become commander-in-chief of the armed forces Stories of random disappearances that plagued our area under his reign and about sectarian violence between Muslims and Christians that had taken place in deep villages were still fresh in memories of many parents. So not many positive stories about this giant of man was narrated even when we were adults. So, in the period of growing up and learning, it was now very clear that this Idi Amin was not the same president we had joked about as kids. Stories such as his alleged cannibalism, even that of him sacrificing his own son Moses, although dubious are now well known to have been desperate and made up stories, those were commonly told stories that Hollywood would later say is a pawn to add some ju juicy twists to his own scripts. After 40 years, Aminism lives on. Through a combination of populist charm and violence that shocked many, he ruled for eight years until his strategic blunders brought him down. Abroad, he was considered a buffoon who seemed to have some sense of humor, although they misunderstood what that sense of humor was. Thank you for listening. In the next series, I will take you through yet another version of Idi Amin, the one I met in London streets and university campuses. Amin, the so-called the last king of Scotland, the so-called the butcher of Africa, and others, Amin, the misunderstood Pan-Africanist.